Section 12 of Appreciations with an Essay on Style. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eberly Thomas. Appreciations by Walter Pater. Section 12 Shakespeare's English Kings. A brittle glory shineth in this face, as brittle as the glory is the face. The English plays of Shakespeare needed but the completion of one unimportant interval to possess the unity of a popular chronicle from Richard the Second to Henry the Eighth, and possess, as they actually stand, the unity of a common motive and the handling of the various events and persons which they bring before us. Certain of his historic dramas, not English, display Shakespeare's mastery in the development of the heroic nature amid heroic circumstances, and had he chosen from English history to deal with Coeur de Lyon or Edward I, the innate quality of his subject would doubtless have called into play something of that profound and sombre power which in Julius Caesar and Macbeth has sounded the depths of mighty character. True on the whole to fact, it is another side of kingship which he has made prominent in his English histories. The irony of kingship, average human nature flung with a wonderfully pathetic effect into the vortex of great events, tragedy of everyday quality, heightened in degree only by the conspicuous scene which does but make those who play their parts there conspicuously unfortunate, the utterance of common humanity straight from the heart, but refined, like other common things, for kingly uses by Shakespeare's unfailing eloquence. Such, unconsciously for the most part, though palpably enough to the careful reader, is the conception under which Shakespeare has arranged the lights and shadows of the story of the English kings, emphasizing merely the light and shadow inherent in it, and keeping very close to the original authorities, not simply in the general outline of these dramatic histories, but sometimes in their very expression. Certainly the history itself, as he found it in Hall, Holinshed, and Stowe, those somewhat picturesque old chroniclers who had themselves an eye for the dramatic effects of human life, has much of this sentiment already about it. What he did not find there was the natural prerogative. Such justification in kingly, that is to say, in exceptional qualities, of the exceptional position, as makes it practicable in the result. It is no Henriad, he writes, and no history of the English people, but the sad fortunes of some English kings as conspicuous examples of the ordinary human condition. As in a children's story, all princes are in extremes, delightful in the sunshine above the wall into which chance lifts the flower for a season, they can but plead somewhat more touchingly than others their everyday weakness in the storm. Such is the motive that gives unity to these unequal and intermittent contributions toward a slowly evolved dramatic chronicle, which it would have taken many days to rehearse. A not distant story from real life, still well remembered in its general course, 
to which people might listen now and again as long as they cared finding human nature at least wherever their attention struck ground in it he begins with john and allows indeed to the first of these english kings a kind of greatness making the development of the play centre in the counteraction of his natural gifts that something of heroic force about him by a madness which takes the shape of reckless impiety forced especially on men's attentions by the terrible circumstances of his end in the delineation of which shakespeare triumphs setting with true poetic tact this incident of the king's death in all the horror of a violent one amid a scene delicately suggestive of what is perennially peaceful and genial in the outward world like the sensual humours of falstaff in another play the presence of the bastard falconbridge with his physical energy and his unmistakable family likeness those limbs which sir robert never hoped to make contributes to an almost coarse assertion of the force of nature of the somewhat ironic preponderance of nature and circumstance over men's artificial arrangements to the recognition of a certain potent natural aristocracy which is far from being always identical with that more formal heraldic one and what is a coarse fact in the case of falconbridge becomes a motive of pathetic appeal in the wan and babyish arthur the magic with which nature models tiny and delicate children to the likeness of their rough fathers is nowhere more justly expressed than in the words of king philip look here upon thy brother geoffrey's face these eyes these brows were moulded out of his this little abstract doth contain that large which died in geoffrey and the hand of time shall draw this brief into as huge a volume it was perhaps something of a boyish memory of the shocking end of his father that had distorted the piety of henry the third into superstitious terror a frightened soul himself touched with the contrary sort of religious madness doting on all that was alien from his father's huge ferocity on the genialities the soft gilding of life on the genuine interests of art and poetry to be credited more than any other person with the deep religious expression of westminster abbey henry the third picturesque though useless but certainly touching might have furnished shakespeare had he filled up this interval in his series with precisely the kind of effect he tends towards in his english plays but he found it completer still in the person and story of richard the second a figure that sweet lovely rose which haunts shakespeare's mind as it seems to have haunted the minds of the english people as the most touching of all examples of the irony of kingship henry the fourth to look for a moment beyond our immediate subject in pursuit of shakespeare's thought is presented of course in general outline as an impersonation of surviving force he has a certain amount of kingcraft also a real fitness for great opportunity but still true to his leading motive shakespeare in king henry the fourth has left the high-water mark of his poetry in the soliloquy which represents royalty longing vainly for the toiler's sleep while the popularity the showy heroism of henry v 
is used to give emphatic point to the old earthy commonplace about wild oats the wealth of homely humour in these plays the fun coming straight home to all the world of fluellen especially in his unconscious interview with the king the boisterous earthiness of falstaff and his companions contribute to the same effect the keynote of shakespeare's treatment is indeed expressed by henry v himself the greatest of shakespeare's kings though i speak it to you he says incognito under cover of night to a common soldier on the field i think the king is but a man as i am the violet smells to him as it doth to me all his senses have but human conditions and though his affections be higher mounted than ours yet when they stoop they stoop with like wing and in truth the really kingly speeches which shakespeare assigns to him as to other kings weak enough in all but speech are but a kind of flowers worn for and effective only as personal embellishment they combine to one result with the merely outward and ceremonial ornaments of royalty its pageantries flaunting so naively so credulously in shakespeare as in that old medieval time and then the force of hotspur is but transient youth the common heat of youth in him the character of henry the sixth again roi fainéant with la pucelle for his counterfoil lay in the direct course of shakespeare's design he has done much to fix the sentiment of the holy henry richard the third touched like john with an effect of real heroism is spoiled like him by something of criminal madness and reaches his highest level of tragic expression when circumstances reduce him to terms of mere human nature a horse a horse my kingdom for a horse the princes in the tower recall to mind the lot of young arthur i'll go with thee and find the inheritance of this poor child his little kingdom of a forced grave and when shakespeare comes to henry the eighth it is not the superficial though very english splendour of the king himself but the really potent and ascendant nature of the butcher's son on the one hand and catherine's subdued reproduction of the sad fortunes of richard the second on the other that define his central interest with a prescience of the wars of the roses of which his errors were the original cause it is richard the second who best exposes shakespeare's own constant sentiment concerning war and especially that sort of civil war which was then recent in english memories the soul of shakespeare certainly was not wanting in a sense of the magnanimity of warriors the grandiose aspects of war its magnificent apparelling he records monumentally enough the dressing of the lists the lion's heart its unfaltering haste thither in all the freshness of youth and morning not sick although i have to do with death the sun doth gild our armour up my lords i saw young harry with his beaver on his cuisses on his thighs gallantly armed rise from the ground like feathered mercury only with shakespeare the afterthought is immediate they come like sacrifices in their trim will it never be to-day 
I will trot to-morrow a mile, and my way shall be paved with English faces. This sentiment Richard reiterates very plaintively, in association with the delicate sweetness of the English fields, till sweet and fresh, like London and her other fair towns in that England of Chaucer, for whose soil the exiled Bolingbroke is made to long so dangerously, while Richard, on his return from Ireland, salutes it, that pale, that white-faced shore, as a long-parted mother with her child, so weeping, smiling, greet I thee, my earth, and do thee favour with my royal hands. Then, of Bolingbroke, Ere the crown he looks for live in peace, Ten thousand bloody crowns of mother's sons Shall ill become the flower of England's face, Change the complexion of her maid-pale peace To scarlet indignation, And bedew my pasture's grass With faithful English blood. Why have they dared to march? Asks York. So many miles upon her peaceful bosom, Frighting her pale-faced visages with war? Waking, according to Richard, our peace, which in our country's cradle draws the sweet infant breath of gentle sleep, bedrenching with crimson tempest the fresh green lap of fair King Richard's land, frighting fair peace from our quiet confines, laying the summer's dust with showers of blood rained from the wounds of slaughtered Englishmen bruising her flowerets with the armed hoofs of hostile paces. Perhaps it is not too fanciful to note in this play a peculiar recoil from the mere instruments of warfare, the contact of the rude ribs, the flint bosom of Barclough Castle or Pomfret, or Julius Caesar's ill-erected tower, the boisterous, untuned drums with harsh, resounding trumpets, dreadful bray, and grating shock of wrathful iron arms. It is as if the lax, soft beauty of the king took effect, at least by contrast, on everything beside. One gracious prerogative certainly Shakespeare's English kings possess. They are very eloquent company and Richard is the most sweet-tongued of them all. In no other play, perhaps, is there such a flush of those gay, fresh, variegated flowers of speech, colour and figure, not lightly attached to, but fused into the very phrase itself, which Shakespeare cannot help dispensing to his characters, as in this play of the deposing of King Richard the Second. An exquisite poet, if he is nothing else, from first to last, in light and gloom alike, able to see all things poetically, to give a poetic turn to his conduct of them, and refreshing with his golden language the tritest aspects of that ironic contrast between the pretensions of a king and the actual necessities of his destiny. What a garden of words! With him, blank verse, infinitely graceful, deliberate, musical in inflection, becomes indeed a true verse royal, that rhyming lapse which, to the Shakespearean ear at least in youth, came as the last touch of refinement on it, being here doubly appropriate. 
his eloquence blends with that fatal beauty of which he was so frankly aware so amiable to his friends to his wife of the effects of which on the people his enemies were so much afraid on which shakespeare himself dwells so attentively as the royal blood comes and goes in the face with his rapid changes of temper as happens with sensitive natures it attunes him to a congruous suavity of manners by which anger itself becomes flattering it blends with his merely youthful hopefulness and high spirits his sympathetic love for gay people things apparel his coat of gold and stone valued at thirty thousand marks the novel italian fashions he preferred as also with those real amiabilities that made people forget the darker touches of his character but never tire of the pathetic rehearsal of his fall the meekness of which would have seemed merely abject in a less graceful performer yet it is only fair to say that in the painstaking revival of king richard the second by the late charles Keen, those who were very young thirty years ago were afforded much more than shakespeare's play could ever have been before the very person of the king based on the stately old portrait in westminster abbey the earliest extant contemporary likeness of any english sovereign the grace the winning pathos the sympathetic voice of the player the tasteful archaeology confronting vulgar modern london with a scenic reproduction for once really agreeable of the london of chaucer in the hands of keen the play became like an exquisite performance on the violin the long agony of one so gaily painted by nature's self from his tragic abdication till the hour in which he sluiced out his innocent soul through streams of blood was for playwrights a subject ready to hand and became early the theme of a popular drama of which some have fancied surviving favourite fragments in the rhymed parts of shakespeare's work the king richard of england was in his flowers then regnant but his flowers efter son faded and were all undone says the old chronicle strangely enough shakespeare supposes him an overconfident believer in that divine right of kings of which people in shakespeare's time were coming to hear so much a general right sealed to him so richard is made to think as an ineradicable personal gift by the touch stream rather over head and breast and shoulders of the holy oil of his consecration at westminster not however through some oversight the genuine balm used at the coronation of his successor given according to legend by the blessed virgin to st thomas of canterbury richard himself found that it was said among other forgotten treasures at the crisis of his changing fortunes and vainly sought reconsecration therewith understood wistfully that it was reserved for his happier rival and yet his coronation by the pageantry the amplitude the learned care of its order so lengthy that the king then only eleven years of age and fasting as a communicant at the ceremony was carried away in a faint fixed the type under which it has ever since continued and nowhere is there so emphatic a reiteration as in richard the second 
of the sentiment which those singular rites were calculated to produce not all the water in the rough rude sea can wash the balm from an anointed king as supplementing another almost supernatural rite edward's seven sons of whom richard's father was one were as seven vials of his sacred blood but this too in the hands of shakespeare becomes for him like any other of those fantastic ineffectual easily discredited personal graces as capricious in its operation on men's wills as mere physical beauty kindling himself to eloquence indeed but only giving double pathos to insults which barbarism itself might have pitied the dust in his face as he returns through the streets of london a prisoner in the train of his victorious enemy how soon my sorrow hath destroyed my face he cries in that most poetic invention of the mirror scene which does but reinforce again that physical charm which all confessed the sense of divine right in kings is found to act not so much as a secret of power over others as of infatuation to themselves and of all those personal gifts the one which alone never altogether fails him is just that royal utterance his appreciation of the poetry of his own hapless lot an eloquent self-pity infecting others in spite of themselves till they too become irresistibly eloquent about him in the roman pontifical of which the order of coronation is really a part there is no form for the inverse process no rite of degradation such as that by which an offending priest or bishop may be deprived if not of the essential quality of orders yet one by one of its outward dignities it is as if shakespeare had had in mind some such inverted rite like those old ecclesiastical or military ones by which human hardness or human justice adds the last touch of unkindness to the execution of its sentences in the scene where richard deposes himself as in some long agonizing ceremony reflectively drawn out with an extraordinary refinement of intelligence and variety of piteous appeal but also with a felicity of poetic invention which puts these pages into a very select class with the finest vermeil and ivory work of chatterton or keats fetch hither richard that in common view he may surrender and richard more than concurs he throws himself into the part realizes a type falls gracefully as on the world's stage why is he sent for to do that office of thine own good will which tired majesty did make thee offer now mark me how i will undo myself hath bolingbroke deposed thine intellect the queen asks him on his way to the tower hath bolingbroke deposed thine intellect hath he been in thy heart and in truth but for that adventitious poetic gold it would be only plume-plucked richard i find myself a traitor with the rest for i have given here my soul's consent to undeck the pompous body of a king he is duly reminded indeed how that which in mean men we entitle patience is pale cold cowardice in noble breasts 
yet at least within the poetic bounds of shakespeare's play through shakespeare's bountiful gifts his desire seems fulfilled oh that i were as great as is my grief and his grief becomes nothing less than a central expression of all that in the revolutions of fortune's wheel goes down in the world no shakespeare's kings are not nor are meant to be great men rather little or quite ordinary humanity thrust upon greatness with those pathetic results the natural self-pity of the weak heightened in them into irresistible appeal to others as the net result of their royal prerogative one after another they seem to lie composed in shakespeare's embalming pages with just that touch of nature about them making the whole world akin which has infused into their tombs at westminster a rare poetic grace it is that irony of kingship the sense that it is in its happiness child's play in its sorrows after all but children's grief which gives its finer accent to all the changeful feeling of these wonderful speeches the great meekness of the graceful wild creature tamed at last give richard leave to live till richard die his somewhat abject fear of death turning to acquiescence at moments of extreme weariness my large kingdom for a little grave a little little grave an obscure grave his religious appeal in the last reserve with its bold reference to the judgment of pilate as he thinks once more of his anointing and as happens with children he attains contentment finally in the merely passive recognition of superior strength in the naturalness of the result of the great battle as a matter of course and experiences something of the royal prerogative of poetry to obscure or at least to attune and soften men's griefs as in some sweet anthem of handel the sufferer who put finger to the organ under the utmost pressure of mental conflict extracts a kind of peace at last from the mere skill with which he sets his distress to music beshrew thee cousin that didst lead me forth of that sweet way i was in to despair with cain go wander through the shades of night cries the new king to the jailer exton dissimulating his share in the murder he is thought to have suggested and in truth there is something of the murdered abel about shakespeare's richard the fact seems to be that he died of waste and a broken heart it was by way of proof that his end had been a natural one that stifling a real fear of the face the face of richard on men's minds with the added pleading now of all dead faces henry exposed the corpse to general view and shakespeare in bringing it on the stage in the last scene of his play does but follow out the motive with which he has emphasized richard's physical beauty all through it that most beauteous inn as the queen says quaintly meeting him on the way to death residence then soon to be deserted of that wayward frenzied but withal so affectionate soul though the body did not go to westminster immediately his tomb 
that small model of the barren earth which serves as paste and cover to our bones the effigy clasping the hand of his youthful consort was already prepared there with rich gilding and ornaments monument of poetic regret for queen anne of bohemia not of course the queen of shakespeare who however seems to have transferred to this second wife something of richard's wildly proclaimed affection for the first in this way through the connecting link of that sacred spot our thoughts once more associate richard's two fallacious prerogatives his personal beauty and his anointing according to johnson richard the second is one of those plays which shakespeare has apparently revised and how doubly delightful shakespeare is where he seems to have revised would that he had blotted a thousand a thousand hasty phrases we may venture once more to say with his earlier critic now that the tiresome german superstition has passed away which challenged us to a dogmatic faith in the plenary verbal inspiration of every one of shakespeare's clowns like some melodiously contending anthem of handel's i said of shakespeare's meek undoing of himself in the mirror scene and in fact the play of richard the second does like a musical composition possess a certain concentration of all its parts a simple continuity an evenness in execution which are rare in the great dramatist with romeo and juliet that perfect symphony symphony of three independent poetic forms set in a grander one which it is the merit of german criticism to have detected it belongs to a small group of plays whereby happy birth and consistent evolution dramatic form approaches to something like the unity of a lyrical ballad a lyric a song a single strain of music which sort of poetry we are to account the highest is perhaps a barren question yet if in art generally unity of impression is a note of what is perfect then lyric poetry which in spite of complex structure often preserves the unity of a single passionate ejaculation would rank higher than dramatic poetry where especially to the reader as distinguished from the spectator assisting at a theatrical performance there must always be a sense of the effort necessary to keep the various parts from flying asunder a sense of imperfect continuity such as the older criticism vainly sought to obviate by the rules of the dramatic unities it follows that a play attains artistic perfection just in proportion as it approaches that unity of lyrical effect as if a song or ballad were still lying at the root of it all the various expression of the conflict of character and circumstance falling at last into the compass of a single melody or musical theme as historically the earliest classical drama arose out of the chorus from which this or that person this or that episode detached itself so into the unity of a choric song the perfect drama ever tends to return its intellectual scope deepened complicated enlarged but still with an unmistakable singleness or identity in its impression on the mind just there in that vivid single impression left on the mind when all is over 
not in any mechanical limitation of time and place is the secret of the unities the true imaginative unity of the drama end of section twelve recording by eberly thomas